Almighty Father in heaven, maker of heaven and earth, you are true and good. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Blessed be your name. We gather here this morning, bow our heads that we might receive from your good hand all that our hearts desire. For you are the only blessed forever. We confess our constant attempts to possess good without your hand, to pursue satisfaction without your favor, to understand what is good without your revelation. In these ways, we are not only foolish, Lord, but we are sinful and rebellious. For from you and to you and for you are all good things. And so it must be from your hand that we receive them. Come now and cause your spirit to quicken our hearts to receive by faith this word from you this morning. Oh, that you would open your hand and satisfy our souls as you've done over and over again. Oh, that you would allow us to receive your word, to repent of our foolish assumptions and what we think we need or want or prefer. Lord, would you turn us now to gaze, to cling to, to trust in, to rest on our Savior our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ. May we live under His authority. May we glory in His name. May we look to Him for all that is good. We ask these things in Your Son's most blessed name. Amen. Well, last week we considered several things from chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes that causes our souls to groan. Here on earth, we recognize the prevalence of tyranny at the beginning of chapter 5. And then we turn to the danger of loving money. And then we notice at the end of chapter 5 the shortfall, not the benefit, of riches and what riches bring into our lives. And then at the very end of chapter 5, I want you to notice there in verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. It turns us... The preacher, called the preacher in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, uh, likely Solomon, the preacher turns us to reflect on the good that God wants us to pursue in life. And he says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18, these words, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So for a book that seemed, as we began working through it in the first several chapters, seemed to be filled with vanity and despair. There was this breath-like um, emptiness that was around. There's this aimlessness in the book of Ecclesiastes that keeps coming at us. We find, actually, that the book of Ecclesiastes is showing us that as we gaze upon and as we live for those things that are, as the phrase is used in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, if we live our lives as we may speak of today in a secular way, living our world as if, as if there is no God in heaven, if we live that way, there is despair, there is vanity, there is emptiness 
There is aimlessness. But the book of Ecclesiastes turns us, and it did that exactly in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as it turns us to see that our, our true aim and goal in life is to guard our steps when we come into the house of the Lord. And we draw near to Him in prayer, receive from Him His Word, and we live lives that are, uh, that, that, are, that, are, that are dedicated and devoted to our God who is in heaven. This is a life that God has called us to. And this is the life that we are called to this morning as we look at this passage before us in chapter 6. The vanity is here. But the vanity is here if we insist on allowing the object of our hope, our, our love, our joys, our satisfaction, our good to be here on earth instead of in heaven. And so as the preacher turns from chapter 5 at the very end again to chapter 6, he's going to be speaking of these things that if you insist to go after these things that are in the world, you will continue in the despair and vanity that this world will necessarily bring to us. I was reminded as I was reflecting and meditating on this passage this week of an old story that many of us have read. Uh, second to only the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is the second most read book in all of history. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is the main figure there, the main person in the story. He's making his way to the celestial city. And on that road, he finds himself in a city by the name of Vanity. I want to read just a bit about this city named Van the City of Vanity. This is Bunyan speaking of him dreaming and continuing in his dream because this book is supposedly a, a work where Bunyan is dreaming and, and understanding a Christian as he goes toward heaven. Then I saw my dream, Bunyan writes, that when they were got out of the wilderness... They presently saw a town before them. This is Christian, as well as a, a, a colleague of Christians at this time named Faithful. And so that's the they. They got out of the wilderness. And they presently saw a town before them. And the name of the town was Vanity. And at the town, there was a fair kept. And it was called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. It beareth the name of Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. And also because all that is there, all that is there sold or that comes from there is vanity. Bunyan continues and he says, This fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. I will show, the, show you the origin of it. Bunyan then goes on and says that there were three, Beelzebul, Apollyon and Legion. Now, this is the story. Okay, this is not the Bible. This is in Pilgrim's Progress. These three saw that pilgrims, Christians, would be on their journey to the celestial city, and they would pass through this town called Vanity. It wasn't enough that they simply passed through it, but these three, in their evil motives, desired for the pilgrims who were finding their way to the celestial city, not simply to pass through this city called Vanity, but to remain there. You see, their aim was for men and women and boys and girls who had their eye on the celestial city to find that Vanity Fair was more appealing. And for them to linger there, drinking of all of this worthlessness, this emptiness, this vanity so that they might be distracted and never want to leave. 
The story is quite a story. I would encourage you to read it. It is, it is designed for children, but it, it definitely drives the heart of the adult as well. Vanity Fair did not like Christian and faithful. They actually appalled them. One of the reasons was Christian and faithful saw their goods as being worthless. Christian and faithful saw that the things that they were trying to sell in Vanity Fair was cotton candy. It was empty. It wasn't worth staying for. It wasn't worth giving their lives for. In fact, this angered the citizens of of, of Vanity, the city. And it says that when they were commended to buy things, it says, but that which did not but that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very lightly by all of their wares. In other words, they didn't think very much of all the things they had. They weren't enamored by them. They weren't allured by them like so many were. They cared not so much as to look upon them. And if they called upon them, in other words, the, the people of Vanity Fair, if they called upon them and said, uh, called upon them to buy their goods, They, Christian and faithful, would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding this vanity and look upward, signifying that their trade and their traffic was only to be done in heaven. The citizens of Vanity Fair hated, came to hate, Christian and faithful. This morning we're going to turn in our text to a description of this world. And my prayer is that as we work through this description, we will see again, as we have so many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we too live in a vanity fair. We live in a world that's seeking to um, constantly sell us our trinkets and our baubles and our things that are in this world and say, turn to these and live for them. And many of us need to be told this morning, as God's people, that we are not fervent enough to put our fingers in our ears. Or to turn to Christ and see that this world and the things in it are not worth living for. These things are vanity. Our eyes, our hearts have been convinced. We've been, we, are, we are indeed, we are indeed those who receive all of these commercials. We understand. We've been catechized by this world. And this world has convinced us that we need the things of this world. And along the way, we need to add Jesus to it. This is foolish. This is vanity. And so this morning, as we turn to our text, I want us to notice again this great burden that lies upon every one of us as humankind. This desire of our souls to find joy. Each one of us have that in us. To to be satisfied in our hearts. Each one of us desire those things. To, To look and to long for that which is good. And we use that word today so often, sadly, just like the world does. And we're looking for these things under the sun. Our preacher, Solomon, here in the book of Ecclesiastes, is going to help us see better, see more clearly as we are walking around in this vanity fair of our lives. And we will see just how unable this life is to maintain these things in our lives. And we're going to look again and reaffirm that the one source of our true delight is Jesus Christ, our Savior. So this morning, I want us to consider chapter 6 in three points. The first one is going to be the longest because it has the most text in it. Look with me, if you will, at the passage here in Ecclesiastes 6. Notice here, if you will, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6 is point number 1. No joy in life. No joy in life. That's point number 1. 
No joy in life. Verses 1 through 6. Point number two, no satisfaction for appetite. No satisfaction for appetite. This is verses 7 through 9. Do you see the paragraph there? And then thirdly, point number three, no knowledge of good. No knowledge of good. This is verses 10 through 12. No joy in life, verses 1 through 6. No satisfaction for appetite, verses 7 through 9. No knowledge of good, verses 10 through 12. And again, I want to remind you that verse 1, or point 1, will be the longest of the three. Let's begin then as we look at no joy in life. The first burden that the lack of joy, this first burden is this lack of joy that all of life knows of. Here we have something that is unavoidable, as the, the preacher is explaining it here. It is pressing upon us. It's a burden that all humanity knows of. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 1 of chapter 6 reads, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. Here we have this circumstance. Under the sun, which is this world that is lived without a reference to God, this circumstance... He declares it, the psalmist, or the, the, the preacher declares it as, as evil. Do you see that? There's an evil that I've seen. And this speaks to just how bad and abhorrent this is. It really is a burden. It's, it's a drudgery to our souls. And then we see that the circumstance is unrelenting. It's, it's unavoidable for all mankind. We can't ignore it, nor can we dismiss it in our lives. We're constantly being faced with it, each and every one of us. Our souls confront us with it. You see there in our passage in verse 1, it says that the circumstance lies heavy on mankind. Some translations say it is common to mankind. It is, it is part of each and every one of us, the longing that's in our hearts. So what is this odious, inevitable circumstance that is so evil that we experience in this world? Look with me at verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. I hope you can see here what our text is setting before us. Here we recognize, <coughs> excuse me, here we recognize that there can be a person that's in our lives. And heaven forbid, maybe someone here this morning that would say that they have been given all the wealth, and possessions, and honor that this world can give them. That anyone looking at them would say, this person has everything that the world would say is good and right and helpful. Man's life is full of everything. He lacks nothing, as our passage says. But instead, he has everything that his heart desires. Is this the evil that is spoken of in our passage? Look at it carefully. Is this what the preacher is saying is the evil that's in this world? Not at all. It's not wealth or riches or possessions. This isn't the thing that's evil. Instead, the real evil, the revolting problem, is what comes next. Notice in our passage, this is what is so difficult. This is what is the burden upon us all. Yet God, and it's God who gives this, I find that interesting. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. That is the wealth, the possessions, and the honor. 
Do you see what's being said here? That it is God who gives us all that we have. But more than that, it must be God who gives us the ability to enjoy those things. And if he does not give them, and in this case, he has not given this one the ability to enjoy these things, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Our text does not give how the Lord is refusing or keeping this person from enjoying these things. We, we don't know that. That's not there. If anything, we can look back at chapter 5 and we can say that possibly it could be that this person has all of these things and instead of enjoying them, he lives his life constantly frantic to keep them and sustain these things and to maintain these things so his life is dreaded because he's having to maintain all of the wealth and the possessions that God has given to him. That's a possibility, but we don't have it here. Or it may be that this person has lived to drink deeply of each and every one of these possessions. He's had everything that the world has offered. He has loved and enjoyed and, and possessed all these things, and he's drank deeply of them, and yet he knows in his heart that they have not satisfied him. Maybe it's that. We don't know. We don't know what it is that has, that, that's causing this, this one not to enjoy the things that they have. We don't know. What we know is that there are those who have all that the world has to offer. And without the Lord's grace and good favor in that man's life, he can possess these things and live in absolute turmoil and utter despair every single waking moment of his life. Even the sleeping moments of his life, as we know in chapter 5. Even worse, our passage says that not a relative or even a close friend, or even a companion. None of them. But instead it says here that a, that a stranger is going to enjoy these things, not that man or anyone he's associated with. A person who would not even be considered an acquaintance will be the person who enjoys these goods, who finds them helpful. Kohelet is the Hebrew term that we've been using for the, for the title preacher. He makes an assessment. He assesses this this burden that's before us. And he says, not only is this something that all of us know and experience, and that is that, that we find it difficult to discern how can, we, how can we enjoy this life? You know, many of us think, well, maybe we can have more things. Maybe it's because I, I lack in this or that. I just can't enjoy life, so therefore I must have these things. What he's saying is that those who have everything have come to realize that they are not happy unless the Lord gives them that enjoyment. And then he assesses this. He, he evaluates this experience and he says at the end of verse 2, he says, this is vanity. And he goes on and he says, this is a grievous evil. Do you remember that phrase from last week? Grievous evil? That phrase last week we, we looked at and we considered that it, it can be translated a sickening calamity. A, a painful wickedness can be the way that phrase is translated. It's, it's a dreadful phrase. In other words, he's saying, this is, this is not the way to live. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that what our Bible is trying to bring before us this morning, though it seems so hopeless and despairing, the passage here is saying, we need to enjoy life. We're called to find enjoyment in this life. And if your joy is not rooted in the Lord, but instead in the things of this life, then you'll never find enjoyment until the Lord himself opens his hand and gives it to us. Look with me. Our text now turns to help us understand just how dreadful this circumstance is. This circumstance really is awful. 
Many of us live thinking and assuming that, you know what? If I had all those things, maybe I wouldn't be happy, but man, I think I could be happier than I am now. If I can just have this or that, or if I can add some things together, or if I can get a promotion, or if I can get that spouse, or if I can have different this and different that, then, then my life would be happier if I can just have those things. And n- notice what the preacher here is trying to communicate in verses 3 through 6. He's saying, has all of these wealth and all of this stuff, and yet the Lord hasn't given them the ability to enjoy it. And he shows them just how dreadful this plight is. Verse 3, it goes on. It says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in, in vanity, and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has, been, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The preacher brings forward two of the greatest expressions of lavish blessing that has been considered to be fond and wonderful and desirous throughout all of human history. The man who is naturally blessed by God is blessed with two things. And he's saying not only is he blessed, but he he exaggerates. He said this man is blessed lavishly by God. And how is that man blessed? He's blessed with many children. And he's blessed with long life. Now here the expression is exaggerated to simply help us understand the point that's being made. And that is, this man is blessed beyond any exaggeration or comprehension, and yet this man still, still cannot find joy in his life. In other words, he has more children and more days than any of us could ever imagine. It says he has over a hundred. And he has a thousand twice over number of days or years. Now this will require a little bit of explanation for us this morning. Because I fear that we've been indoctrinated, we've been catechized by the world and the American dream more than we have by the scriptures and by God. First, because there's, there are few in our world today that would affirm that many children are in fact and indeed is clearly declared in the scriptures. Our, our society has been carefully yet consistently and fully catechizing each and every one of you. The culture has told us, and we are not so incredibly catechized that we come out and do all the extreme and major things, but instead, we have believed and begin to acknowledge that children may, in fact, not be a blessing. The birth rate all over the world is plummeting. There are countries that are trying to create robots right now to change adult diapers because they don't have enough children in those countries. It it is sad. It 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 is an amazing atrocity when children are not considered the blessing that God has called them to be. It is significant that for the last several years, even in America, the birth rate has dropped. 
I am thankful, and I want to praise you, congregation, because I think we single-handedly at Tracy Road is upping that number, right? I think we alone are the ones keeping that number from plummeting more than it is. It is, it is fantastic. And it is a blessing to know that we have families that are desiring to be blessed by children and know them as a blessing. Too often, though, our world thinks of children as simply another calculated commodity that can fit into our desired lifestyle as long as it doesn't mess up with our American dream, by, by which I want to be very clear here, the American dream is actually not just not, just not in the Bible, it's antithetical to the Bible. It's not, it's not something that we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing godliness and faithfulness, not the American dream. Our culture insists that children are more of a calculated commodity than something that we should pursue. It is to be considered as an expense or maybe even a burden to have children and avoided, if at all, if at all possible, you can do that. Now, I want, you to be, I want to be clear here because there's a lot of people who would love to argue with me, and I'd love to talk with you about this if you want to. But bring your Bible. Don't hear me saying that having children should not be a, a, an issue of biblical wisdom or that it shouldn't be done with much prayer and concern because what you're bringing into this world is another individual that you are called to disciple and bring up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that is a great calling. So it needs to be done with care and with much prayer and with biblical insight and with everything in you trying to remove the fact that just because you have the option of not having children doesn't mean you shouldn't. And too often we use the American dream as the reason why we shouldn't instead of biblical standards. So let me turn for a moment before I get off of this topic and say this. Um, I find myself defending too often the goodness of the blessing of children far more in my conversations, even among Christians and even among pastors, than I do um, this assumption that so many have. And that is, if you can have less children, then what crazy person wouldn't do that? I'm constantly trying to point them back to the fact that having children is a blessing. The man in our text this morning who fathers a hundred children is seen as a blessed, is blessed by God beyond all imagination and comprehension. Allow this to encourage many of you that are here this morning that are trying your best to have your children in this service, your child or your children. Um, it is a blessing. It is hard, but it is worth it. And I'm thankful for the children that are here. The second thing I want to say concerning this, and then I'll get off the point, and that is that I do know that children, um, as hard as the parents try to make it not so, the children can be a distraction. But I want you to remember that we're in, we've gathered in the house of God before God. Let me, let me help you here. You will almost naturally or automatically Think of yourself as coming into a movie theater to watch a show when you come into this room and sit down. That's your automatic kind of way you think about this because this is how it feels. But I'm not up here entertaining you. And you're not sitting there passively watching the show. God is in our midst, and he's in our midst with our children and with our families and with our loved ones, with our older uh, saints and with our younger saints, with our children. We're so very thankful that we're able to be here together. We're not simply watching a movie or trying to understand some intellectual lecture. We're seeking to turn our hearts to God together, and it is a great blessing that we have our children with us. They can be distracting, but they need to be with us. And so let's turn our hearts to acknowledge that this is not what the world would like to make it. 
this is an opportunity for us to be able to turn our hearts to the Lord together. Now, I've jumped off and ran a couple of rabbit, rabbit trails there. I realize that. But I felt it was important for us to acknowledge in this passage that when this passage is speaking of 100 children, some of you said, my goodness, what has this man done wrong? Right? And that is not the case at all. When this is spoken of, it's completely opposite. Isn't it interesting how quick our hearts automatically go somewhere and we think we're being biblical or even faithful in our thinking? And it's completely contrary to what the scriptures are saying. So my encouragement to you is to look at the scriptures as they feed us and help us understand our very understanding and then shape our thinking to the scriptures, not the other way around. And please, for goodness sake, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that that kind of thinking comes from the world's very good way of discipling all of us. It is the world is catechizing us. And we need to be careful that we're not drinking that water. We're in Vanity Fair way too long. And we'll begin imbibing the ideas and the philosophies of that, of that, that vanity fair that will one day fly away. This man's blessing is not only for many children, but also notice it is for many years. We see it down in verse 6 specifically that he, again, is blessed beyond all imagination. Notice what it says. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over. Now, I do not want that for myself. Um, that's a lot of years, but this is, what, this is the lavish blessing that is there. The assumption is that with the lavish amount of blessing must come joy with his life. You see, if he's able to live a long, enduring life, then he must be one who is being, being lavished upon by God and enjoying these things. But notice that our text goes on and says, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. So it's thousand years twice over of dread. This is so contrary to our thinking sometimes. You and I and the world around us are convinced that if we had enough blessings of this world, if we had enough things that the Lord would give to us, and if we had enough years to enjoy them, then surely we could take these things and we can make them good and we can enjoy the things that are around us. Our text clearly says that this is not true. This will never happen. In fact, that man who has all of these kids and lives for these many, many years, he is miserable and it says he dies alone. It says, and he also has no burial. All those children and all of those years does not guarantee that anyone will give that man a, a, a second of honor once he dies. This man died and no one was even kind enough out of all of his children and out of all of those years that he knew people. No one was kind enough to even put him in a grave and to honor him in that way. Notice the comparison that the preacher makes at the end of verse 3. I say that a stillborn child is better off than this man. How in the world? How in the world can he say that? I mean, this man, granted, he had, he had a lot of years and a lot of children. He had a lot of difficulties. He wasn't, he wasn't honored at the end of his life, but, but he had a, a long life. He had a lot of things. How in the world can the preacher say, how in the world can the scriptures say, and they are true, that a stillborn baby is better than that man? who has all of the things that the world would say is great and yet has no ability to enjoy them, a stillborn baby is better off than him. Because the stillborn baby, it says, comes into the world full of vanity, this world that's full of vanity. And even though it has not known the blessings of possessions, children, or many years, he also has not had to endure the vanity and the hardship that each of these bring, especially if the Lord does not allow that man to enjoy these things. 
Even though the stillborn baby has not seen the son, has not known anything from this world, our text says, yet it finds rest rather than he, rather than that man who has all of these things and yet has no joy. That stillborn has found rest. Now, we need to be careful that we do not make too much from this passage and say all kinds of things that are not trying to be said here. The point that our text is trying to make very clearly is this. If a man lives many years and with much wealth, yet has not been given the ability to enjoy them by God, it says in verse 6, yet enjoy no good before he dies, that this is a grievous evil. It's a horrible burden upon all mankind. And I hope you can see that this text is calling us to this morning. This text this morning is calling us to do this. We must... We must, because our hearts so desperately desire it, we must enjoy life. We must enjoy this life. This text is calling us to look to enjoy the things of this world as we look to God as the giver of those things, and as we pray to God to give us the enjoyment for these things. But here's the big detriment for each and every one of us. If I ask for a show of hands and I'm not, who of us in here are not? complainers. We moan and complain about the struggles and difficulties that we have. We're not thankful to the Lord. Instead, we find not enjoyment from the blessings that the Lord has given us, but hardship and struggle. Oh, that the Lord would grant us His Spirit that we might reaffirm this truth in our lives. First, that it is good and right for us to enjoy life. It is good and right for us to enjoy life. God has called us to do this very thing. Second, that our enjoyment of all things the Lord has lavished on us with, with, with on earth, no matter how much we have or how little we have, no matter how short our days are or how numerous our days are in way of the amount of days we live, <coughs> excuse me, we are to receive each and every one of these as coming from the hand of the Lord and rejoice and praise his name for them. Paul calls Timothy in the church there in Ephesus to speak to those who are rich in this present age. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now listen to this last phrase in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're to enjoy the things that God has given to us. We're called to do that. This is what our Lord actually calls his disciples to. When he calls his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We know that from our catechism, it says, what what does it mean when when Jesus is asking us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? This is what it means. It means provide us with all our bodily needs so that we may acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good and that our care and labor and also your gifts. Listen, did you hear this? Our care and labor and also all of your gifts, listen, cannot do us any good without your blessing. Is that true? That's absolutely true. No matter what we have, they will do us no good. In fact, they will be nothing but a burden to us unless the Lord blesses those things in our life. Grant, therefore, this is continuing the answer the question, what does it mean when the Lord says, give us this day our daily bread? Grant us, therefore, that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures 
and place it only on you, Lord. That's what it means when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. So firstly, first we're supposed to pursue enjoyment in our lives. Second, we're supposed to enjoy these things as coming from the hand of God. It's everything that comes from his hand. And then finally, Jesus calls us to make sure that our hearts are not fixed on this world and all the things that are in it and the things that money can buy, but instead to fix our hope on the joy of heaven. Our hopes can be fixed not only on things, stuff that's tangible, more paychecks or, or more uh, things that are on the earth. We can also fix our hearts on, on relationships. I cannot live without that person. If I have to live without that person, then I want to die. That is a sin. There's only one we live for, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to be living for the relationships we have in others. That is rooting our life in the things of this world. And I promise you, brothers and sisters, if you're living in that way, seeking to live only to fix your hope on another person, it's vanity. It's a grievous evil. And you know that burden. It has not blessed you. It has only made you more sorrowful and filled with turmoil. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're to commit our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and find that only in him can we find joy in this life. Not from the things that are in this world, no matter how much and how many we may have of them. Point number two. Point number two. No satisfaction for our appetites. Look at verses seven through nine. Point number two, no satisfaction for our appetites. Solomon is declaring to God's people as their preacher that there is no joy in life if we set our hearts on the things in this world and on on our lives alone. Then he turns and shows that not only can wealth not bring joy, no matter how long we may desire to have it, neither can our appetites ever be satisfied with the pleasures that are under the sun, the things that are in this world, no matter how much we try to feed them, no matter how much we give to our appetites, they will never be satisfied if we seek to continue to give them the things that are of this world. Look with me at verse 7. We see here that if we set our course in our lives to say, I'm going to work and toil for the purpose of giving to myself everything that I desire and want, that this will not satisfy us. This is where so many here this morning and so many that are around us in our world today, this is where their lives are. And this is why they're in such despair. Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This term, appetite, is not simply something that we put in our mouth necessarily. It can actually be used in other places in the scriptures. It is used to speak of a broader, more encompassing understanding where it speaks of a man's desire as a whole. In other words, no matter how hard or how long man works all his days of life, he will never work enough to satisfy the emptiness found in his soul. Augustine, or I think some of us call it Augustine because of the city, Uh, a patriarch of the church 
Augustine famously said in his confessions, speaking of the Lord, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our hearts desire our appetites will find no rest outside of faith in Christ and thus communion with our God. So later today, later today when you go and have lunch together and you sit and you ask the Lord to bless that meal, I want you to think for a moment before you start eating. Hey, it wasn't but just a few hours ago I was eating again earlier. And, and after I eat this meal, in a few more hours, I'm going to probably be eating again. Why? Because in the same way that our stomachs, our mouths will never be satisfied by the things we can have on this earth and we can put in them, That's a testimony to the fact that our souls will never be satisfied by simply trying to fill them with the things of this world. We must, brothers and sisters, use that as a testimony, an illustration to help us see that our hearts long for something beyond this world, something that's not under the sun, if you will. Verse 8. Notice in verse 8 we have two challenging questions that are set before us in verse 8. The vanity, two questions that press the vanity of attempting to satisfy our desires, our appetites, by the toil of our hands is placed before us here. Possessing a paycheck and trying to meet our needs. Here's the questions, verse 6. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the, fool, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Neither the wise man of this world nor the fool of this world has any advantage in pushing away the discontent and the emptiness that is in their lives. The second question basically goes on and says that this poor man is one who knows how to appropriately um, live and interact with those who are, it says here, before the living, before those who have all the things that are in this world. He's able to interact and mingle with those who are living in this world and have everything before them. And yet, even that doesn't allow that man to enjoy life. I think of all of those who are workers down at the, um, down at the amusement parks in Orlando. They're around all of this amazing things that the world wants to look at and say, these are wonderful things to come and enjoy and have fun in. And yet, those people who are working there, are they the people that are most filled with joy in this world? Simply because they're around those things? Talk to someone who's worked there. They'll tell you. Look with me at verse 9. Solomon puts his finger right on the sore spot. He puts it right on the sore spot for all of us. And he speaks of the wandering of our appetites. Look at verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The Puritans would say it this way. And I've said this before. The Puritans say this uh, quite often. Satan's greatest advantage is our discontent. Satan's greatest advantage in your life is your discontent. The point of our text is that it is better to be content with what we have and the experiences that have been given to us and the circumstances that we have before us and our lives that we're currently living in. This is what is being spoken of when it says better is the, eye, is the sight of the eyes. It's better to see those things and to have those things and acknowledge those things that are around you. It's better to enjoy them and be content with them than to allow your heart to wander off and to covet those things that you do not have. The scriptures are clear on just how discontent our hearts are, just how constantly wandering our hearts are. We don't have to have the Bible, though, 
even though it clearly helps us see this, we know what our hearts are like. We know how our hearts are so wandering and discontent. It says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. How duplicitous, how complex are our hearts. We're constantly looking for something, convinced that if we can just find that next thing, it might satisfy our soul, at least for a little while. Listen to how the Old Testament prophets speak of our wandering hearts. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Jeremiah 14, 10 says, Thus says the Lord concerning his people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Our text has already told us that more objects isn't the answer to our question. We sometimes assume that the reason our hearts are not content and satisfied is because we need that one more thing. Or maybe we need that and this. Or we, we need those things and I have to work so hard to get them. Then our heart can be content. Have you come to the conclusion yet? I hope you have. As you've lived your life and as you begin experimenting, even in your own heart, maybe even not reading your Bible, but just kind of in your own heart, you realize the more I feed that appetite, it doesn't become less wanting. It only becomes more wanting. In other words, the more stuff of this world that you throw at it, it's like salt water. It just makes you more thirsty. It doesn't satisfy anything. The quantity of things will never fill the satisfaction of one's heart and one's soul. And this is why, brothers and sisters, this is why our souls were actually fashioned. Our souls were fashioned by one singular, steadfast, all-sufficient, blessed, forevermore object. This one who is described, he's described in our confession in a helpful way. Our confession has taken all different passages from all over the Bible, and they've said, how can we describe God as, this, as, this, as he's being set forth in the scriptures in various places? Listen carefully to paragraph 2, excuse me, yeah, paragraph 2 of chapter 2 of our confession on, on God, and, and ask yourself this question. Can you, would, would it be wise... For your soul to cast away the things of this world so that you might cling to this one. Can your soul be satisfied with this one? Listen, God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, listen to this, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. Why wander? Why wander from this to that when you have the opportunity by faith in Jesus Christ to possess all the blessings that are in God? This one who is considered blessed, who has all perfections in himself, 
we are able to know and commune with, and yet our hearts want to wander from this trinket to that in this world to pursue those things, assuming that they can somehow satisfy our souls. They will never, they will never do that. I mentioned this before. Do you remember David writing the Psalms in the, in the Psalter in our Bibles? All of the Psalms he wrote, many of them. And in all of those Psalms that he wrote, he speaks of all the things that his heart is desiring and wanting and all the despair and struggle and stuff that's in his heart. It's interesting because he wrote a lot about all of his longings, all of the things that he was disappointed with. David had a lot of things here on earth. David asked for a lot of things from the Lord. But then in Psalm 27, he said something that is, that is shocking. Out of all the things that David expresses with all the emotion and all the desire and all the things that he's speaking of, he says, out of all of those things, Psalm 27, he says, one thing have I asked, for, asked of the Lord. One thing, David? Really? You only asked for one thing? You've been asking for all kinds of things. No, he's saying, in all of those things, I'm asking for one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That will fill your soul. That will satisfy your soul, brothers and sisters, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He goes on in Psalm 73 and says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How then can you and I possess the fullness of joy that's promised here? How can we... How can we rein in our wandering hearts that they may be satisfied and rest in the very presence of God Almighty because none of us are worthy to come before the Father? We do this by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing Him, the power of His resurrection, the hope of the gospel, trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died there on the cross for all of those who have placed their faith in Him for the sin of seeking all kinds of satisfaction and everything else. He took the punishment of that sin upon his body, received the wrath of God, that all of those who would place their faith in him would be delivered from that and find salvation and forgiveness in him. This is why Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That will satisfy our soul. Thirdly and finally, I want us to notice point number three. No, no, no knowing, excuse me, no knowledge of good. No knowledge of good, verses 10 through 12. No knowledge of good, verses 10 through 12. Life is complex. Many of you, like me, earlier this week, many of you this week stood back from something that you've experienced in life this week or something that's happened and you have said to yourself as you've looked at that thing as you've kind of stood back and, and watched what happened you said that doesn't make any sense at all I don't understand why they would do that like 
What would possess somebody to do that? that? That's just crazy. I mean, that just has all kinds of hurt and pain and sorrow that's around it. Why would that person choose this? Have you ever been there? Or I'm, I'm the only one that stands back and says, people do crazy things. I can't figure it out. Our lives are not being ordered by our, our own hearts. That is obvious. We can all thank the Lord that he doesn't ask me about anything in your lives. He orchestrates and orders our lives, not according to our preferences or our assumptions, but the Lord is sovereign and he is making things happen. Things in this world, according to our passage, have already been named. And they're fixed in how they are to operate and work. Ecclesiastes 6.10, look with me if you will. Ecclesiastes 6.10 says, says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The point of the text is basically this. The world and the things in it have already been named. That is, the things in the world and what they are and how they're going to influence one another. Everything has already been determined by God. And it is what I refer to often. Many of you have heard me say this many, many times. When we desperately want something to be different than what it is, and we want to live as if our lives are something different than what they are, I'm constantly telling people, listen, this is what it is. And we've got to live with what is in front of us, not in what we would hope it to be in some other place. It is what it is. And that's what this truth is. Man's place, our strengths and our weaknesses as humanity, our abilities and our inabilities, all of these also have been determined by a God who is good and wise, and he does this according to his promise. This is not fatalism. Given that one, only one, has already named all of these things, has placed these things in creation, and is causing all these things to work forward according to his good glory and purpose, things aren't going to make sense to us. And so when things don't make sense to us and we don't like kind of where we're at and what's happening and what's going on around us, we can complain and debate with God. It says here, with the one who is stronger. That's speaking of the one who is the one ordering and orchestrating all things. That's, that's what it's speaking of here. We can debate with God and we can complain to him and we can let him know how unhappy we are with all the circumstances that are around us. The fact is, too often we do that. We begin arguing. We begin letting God know just how happy, unhappy we are with the, with the inability we have to be able to change that person's life or make our lives more easy or comfortable. But you do know that all of that complaining and whining and grumbling and, and, and spouting off to God, all of that's vanity. Ecclesiastes 6.10, or excuse me, 6.11. Ecclesiastes 6.11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? In other words, the more you try to argue and debate and explain to God why your life really stinks and you really, he needs to really come through and make it better, all of those words are vanity. The prayer isn't, Lord, change all of these things. The, Lord, the prayer is, Lord, make me faithful in them. Make me faithful in them. It goes on and says this very thing. Why? Because it is God who orders these things. Ecclesiastes states this earlier in Ecclesiastes 1.9. This very truth is stated again. Ecclesiastes 1.9, Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Divine providence, absolute control by our God, is a doctrine that's very, very difficult for us to understand. Our hearts often will push against it. We don't like the fact that we're not in charge. But it is, in fact, a wonderful and glorious thing that we're not in charge. And Lord willing, the Lord by His Spirit will continue to convince you of that. 
But the less you insist to be in charge and the more you give humbly over to the Lord the life that he wants to give you, the better off you'll be. In our catechism, again, question 26, it asks this question, what do you understand by the providence of God? Listen to this and tell me if this is not something that you can rest in. What do you understand the providence of God to be? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that a leaf and blade... Rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Our God is a good father who is wise and knows us well. And he gives to us what we need and he keeps from us what we don't need. Before we begin to complain, we would be wise to look at Job, who had every reason to complain as we read through the book of Job, and we see his life stunk. It was horrible. It was awful. And as he began lifting up complaints to the Lord, the Lord began describing to him what the Lord does and who he is. And Job's response in Job 40, verse 4, says this, and this is maybe a verse that we can look at if our hearts are constantly grumbling. Job 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's a good thing to do sometimes. Verse 12. Verse 12. We see there two questions as well. He's asking two questions in our passage, helping us see the real problems of our soul. Verse 12 says, For who knows... What is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And then the second question is, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You see, the problem is in the man who's wanting to know what is good. Who is it that I can go to to find out what is good in my life? My, my days are so few, they're only passing away. I feel like by the time I get to the place where I can really know this, they're going to be gone. And then the next question is, who can tell me this? A good way of maybe saying is, who can reveal to me whether there is something after this life? Whether there might be something after living this life under the sun? You see, the two questions that's before us that haunts all of our souls is this. Is there something to live for now? And is, will there be something to live for forever? I want to return to Vanity Fair as we close. This old story of Pilgrim's Progress and uh, Christian and Christian and faithful enter into Vanity Fair. But many of us know who've read this, that Christian had to leave Vanity Fair without his treasured friend, Faithful. His constant companion that was always with him over and over again, if you read the book, Faithful was faithful to constantly encourage his brother, to lift him up, to help him see that things are not as bad as they always, they always seem to be. Faithful was constantly encouraging him. But he had to leave Faithful in that town. Christian continued on his journey outside of this city called Vanity by himself. 
Because faithful was condemned and martyred in that damning place called Vanity Fair. Let me ask the question, for who knows what good we can possess in these days? Now let me read to you the end of Faithful's life. Notice what he was living for. So they did. The they is the people that judged him to no longer be worthy of life in that city. They condemned him to death, the judges and the people. So they did. Therefore, he was presently condemned to be had from the place where he was to the place from whence he came and there to be put to the most cruel death that could be invented and therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law. And first they scourged him and they buffeted him and then they lanced his flesh with knives. After that they stoned him with stones, then pricked him with their swords. And last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Thus came faithful to his end. I never read that without remembering that John Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel when he wrote that. These are things that he was likely accused, he was likely told that he would have to endure for preaching the gospel. Is there any good in this life, these few days that we live? Yes, there is. It's to live for Jesus Christ. It's to pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to love him and be satisfied in him and never waver in your longing to look to him. The second question that was asked in our text this morning in verse 12 is this, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who can tell man what's going to happen to us after we're dead? Let me continue to read the end of this narrative concerning Vanity Fair. Bunyan says, Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude a chariot. This is faithful, has been burned at the stake. And that behind the multitude was a chariot. And a couple of horses waiting for faithful, who, so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him, was taken up into it. He was taken up into this chariot. And straightway was carried up through the clouds with the sound of a trumpet, the nearest way to the celestial gate. It's interesting because then it turns and it says, but as for Christian, he had some respite and was remanded back to prison. So we remained there for a time. But he who overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so wrought it about that Christian was able to escape from this place. And as he left this city, this was the song on his lips. And I'll end with this. Well faithful thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights. Sing faithful, sing and let thy name survive. For though they killed thee, thou art still alive. Let us pray.